Right, so yeah, today we're going to be looking at the kind of end of Luke 14, which is looking at the great banquet and it's like the cost of following Jesus or the cost of being a disciple. But to get started, we've got two questions. Question one, if you've been invited somewhere you don't really want to go to, what is your like go-to excuse? Like if you if someone's texted you and they've been like, right, do you want to go out? Do you want to do something? But you really don't fancy it, but you don't want to like straight out say no. What's your excuse that you generally use? I'd probably just say it's raining, so I don't want to go outside. I'd say I was tired. I would say I'm seeing my grandma because I usually am. Most of the time it's not a lie. Yep, family commitments. I used to say that my mum said no, but it doesn't really work once you leave home. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one, but I guess, yeah, as you say, it only works for a certain amount of time. I do pretty much the same. I say that I'm not allowed to when I'm just too lazy or something. Yeah. I never have to come up with an excuse. I like to go out either way. Sound right. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of a collection of some excuses. What would you say traditionally characterises these sorts of excuses? Like a common theme that kind of links some of them together. Um, I don't know if this answers the question, but it's like we say we're doing something else or something like that. Like we're busy doing something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Like something that sounds like valid that you think like they're more likely to accept than the actual reason. Yeah, nice. I really like that. Yeah, it's like proposing something else instead absolutely um it's like you're prioritizing something over like making something seem less important even though it probably should be equally as important we kind of make it look like it's not our fault so we all kind of blame it on something else yeah absolutely you know whether we're blaming that on family members parents the weather um yeah 100 percent. i think um just laziness um underpins it all right yeah so that's that's some really great um some great kind of common ideas and themes that you've kind of pulled out of that and much more than I was able to think of. So good job on that. But yeah, you know, like some of these common themes, you know, um, you know, often underpinned by laziness, we're shifting the blame from us onto other people. We are replacing them, almost substituting them with something else and a whole heap of other things. And, you know, sometimes you might have experienced, you've invited someone out and they make an excuse and it's often something really obscure and trivial, like that's of minimal relevance to most people. Or, you know, something that could easily be done at another time. And that's what we're going to see towards the end of the passage that Josh is going to unpack for us today. So before we kind of jump into that, it's important to look at the context that the passage is set in. So Luke 14 is one continuous talk. It opens with Jesus being invited to a Pharisee's house to have some food there. And the whole of Luke 14 is basically just Jesus at the house of a Pharisee. And it all links you know, even though it's subdivided and we're going to be looking, starting at the parable of the great banquet, even though it is subdivided, it's essential to remember that, you know, we must read everything in the context of its surroundings. You know, at the start of Luke 14, as I said, Jesus was invited to eat the Pharisees and have lunch with some other religious leaders. And then while he's there, he tells two parables in response to the situation that he's in. So it's important to take that context. And these two parables fall just outside of our passage. But um they kind of underpin the same themes throughout so the first one is all about a wedding feast and humility you know last week we spoke lots about humility and a verse that kind of sticks with me is 1 peter 5 6 
which reads, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This verse is very similar to the parable, as the parable talks about how when you go to a wedding feast, do not immediately sit yourself at the highest ranking spot. Instead, be humble, because, you know, if you're so prideful and assume that you're the most deserving of honour, it will be very embarrassing when someone else of greater honour comes in and then the host has to ask you to move down a couple of seats. So we must instead be humble and then the host may elevate us. You know, like 1 Peter verse 5, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first or, you know, Luke 13, 13. And it's all about the motives. It's all about the focus and the motivation of our heart regarding our actions. And then the second parable, it continues on the same theme. This is Jesus talking to the host and he's telling the host to think about his invite list. And I'm sure we all did this in primary school where it would be like, oh, okay, you know, this kid invited me to his party. Now I should invite him to mine too. Or maybe, you know, there's a kid in your year, but in another class and you know that he throws great birthday parties. So you're going to invite him to your party and hope that he invites you back. And the idea is, you know, are we doing things to be repaid? Or are we doing them out of love, humility and compassion? And yeah, that's just the main context of the passage that we're going to look at for this evening. And I'm now going to hand straight over to Josh, who's going to delve a bit more into the passage. Yes, I am. Would somebody like to read this out first for me? That would be great. Yeah, go on, Elliot. The parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant, to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And they said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done. There is still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who are invited to get a taste of my banquet. The cost of being a disciple. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will, will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while other is still a long way off, and will ask them for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. I just love the ending of that passage. Like after I've been able to look through it this week, just 
those last two verses just are oh, they great i'll come back to that later but these are two amazing individual passages and i as i was trying to work through this and find out what i was going to bring tonight i was getting a lot for each individual passage and i couldn't really find my link i couldn't really find the thing that really brings them all together it really it was right up until actually last night i still didn't have that ultimate link that draws it all together and wraps it up it's all it's just all about a bit of bad maths as i always like to say so this first passage is it's all about what are our priorities in life what are we going to put first what are we going to stand on in a tough time what are we going to give as our one answer because what is more natural for us these days mindlessly scrolling through social media or reading our bible ought we to prioritize our journey or prioritize the world see in the bible it says you are in the world but not of the world it's a really hard balance to find because we've got to find that balance of fishing for men being called to go out into the world and and relate to people but to still focus on god still not to get let ourselves get all these earthly attachments that it speaks about and it's really difficult to understand because we constantly look out into the world and we see people that we really want to be able to go out and talk to them as people. We want to go out and to be almost normal people who are seen as normal people, not just as Christians, which is a great label to have. But in the world today, it often leads to people thinking that you are boring, that you're not fun to talk to or you're not fun to be around. But I think this group really shows that that's not the case. I'm just going to compliment you all for a second, but like getting to know all you guys is shown that Christians can be Christians and normal people at the same time. And it's really what we're called to do, because if we're called to go out and to make disciples of all nations, if we're called to go out and spread the gospel, share the love of God, we've got to reach people where they are. It's what I think lots of churches almost get wrong in thinking that people are going to come to them rather than them go to people. Because with everything we do we're always looking for that way to relate to them like if i were to go and sit in college and just chat to some random people in the canteen i'd want to find things that i can relate to them i'd want to find the ways that i can realize you know what i kind of understand this person i kind of understand how i would talk to them but at the same time we've got to focus on god at all times which is really difficult because at the end of the day 24 hours a day 60 minutes times 24 i'm not that good at maths we've seen that already and then 60 seconds times that as well somebody probably knows it but that's a massive number of like seconds to be constantly giving our lives to god which is always going to be difficult it's always going to be a hard choice to make but it's still a choice it's still a choice to you know live for god but still be able to relate to people still be able to talk to people and meet them where they're at See, all of these excuses that we see people give are valid excuses. Like we see, I've just brought five yoke of oxen. I've gone to try them out. Please excuse me. Or I've just got married, so I can't come. They're valid excuses to make. They're valid things to say when you've just been invited to something very last minute to say, oh, sorry, I can't come. But there's still that choice to make. There's still that choice to make of, you know, am I going to prioritize God in this or am I going to prioritize the world? And that's where it comes, because we can prioritise God, but we can still be in the world. We can still be looking for God in every situation that we see, because we can still do things that we enjoy. 
like Ben enjoys maths, uh, Ramon enjoys basketball, Alex enjoys American football. We all have the things that we enjoy. We've all had, we all have the things that God has blessed us with a passion for. But if we then putting those things above God, like I love to play cricket and one of our friendly leagues is on a Sunday. And for a long time, I was either having to choose whether I went to church or choose whether I played for the under 13 team. It was like, am I going to prioritise God or am I going to prioritise my cricket? Am I going to prioritise going and playing and being in the world? That's where the difference is made. See, God told us to make disciples of all. Don't let God's gifts that he's given us go to waste just because our first choice people aren't there to experience it. If you walk into college one day and your best friend who's not a Christian, but you really want them to be a Christian, isn't there? You're not just not going to talk to anybody, turn around and go home. You're not just going to give up on the day. Like You still have people that you can talk to. There's still opportunities out there for the taking. See, one of my first memory passages, I'm probably going to mess this up now, is the Ask, Seek, Knock from Matthew 6. Asking you will receive, seeking you will find, knock and the door will be opened. For those who ask, receive, seeks, finds and knocks, the door is opened. We should continue to open those doors. Search for the opportunities. We might see that there's a future for us in a certain path that God knows, but there might be an area where we don't see where God wants us to go in the meantime. So continue, look for those opportunities. Keep your eyes, keep your mind, keep yourself focused on the fact that God might have a job that he really wants you to do, or God might want you to go and live in a certain part of the country, or God might really want you to go and do mission work, or he really might want you to go and plant a church down in Brazil or somewhere. Always focus on that, but don't let the fact that that is what God has planned for you stop experiencing things now. God wants us to explore God wants us to dream big and try to have exciting lives. God wants us to live our lives to the fullest. He doesn't just want us to do specific things that we first set our mind on that he has a plan for us. See, God has prepared a party for us up in heaven. We know that. God has prepared the most amazing thing ever. That's because God wins. And we win big with him. We see time after time after time after time after time after time in the Bible that God wins all the way back from Genesis, all the way through to Jesus and all the way on after. He's prepared a party in, in heaven. All he asks for is us. He doesn't need a sacrifice. That was Jesus. He has planned an amazing godly life for you. He's prepared a life full of him. And if we're going to prioritize God, we get to that point. Jesus doesn't care about how much money we have, what our grades are, but instead it's us choosing him. In life, we look around and everybody thinks, are we checking the boxes? Like if you want to date someone, you think you might think, oh, are they checking all the boxes that are of like my type? Or if you want to go to university, they will want grades, specific grades. They want you to tick all those boxes of what the type of person you are. Or if you're going for a job, they want a certain job in a certain industry. They might want good communicational skills or they might want good technology skills or anything. For God, only one box matters, and that's here. That's our heart for him. It's whether we're choosing him in the hard times. See, a perfect example of this is probably one of my favourite characters, bar Jesus in the Bible, is Daniel. He is an example of a youth taken from his home, and they tried to sway him. They tried to sway him from his faith, but he didn't falter. Him and his friends were seduced with good food. I would have been gone at that point. I would have been 
right, I'm all yours. You've given me good food, that's it. But they were also intimidated. They didn't give in. That's where you see them being, being thrown into the fire. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from a book, a great book, Lifelines by Andy Croft and Mike Pilavachi. Definitely recommend it. It's a great book. It's a kind of though faith that Martin Luther King Jr. speaks about. He was no stranger to in intimidation and received death threats multiple times. See, when he was preaching in 1967, he referred to the story of three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and were confident in his ability to deliver them from flames. But Martin Luther King Jr. made the point that the deepest lesson is found in the statement that the friends made, that even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God didn't save them, they would still not bow down and, and worship the statue. He declared, you see, there is what you may call an if faith, and there is a though faith. And the permanent faith, the lasting faith, the powerful faith is that though faith. Now, the if faith says, if all goes well, if life is hopeful, prosperous and happy, if I don't go to jail and if I don't have to face agonies and burdens of life, if I'm not ever called bad names because of taking a stand that I feel I must take, if none of these things happen, then I'll have faith in God. Then I'll be all right. That's the if faith. There is a though faith, though. And the though faith says, though things go wrong, though evil is temporarily triumphant, though sickness and the cross looms, nevertheless, I'm going to believe anyway. and I'm going to have faith anyway. On the same morning, he announced that I say this to you this morning. If you have never found something so dear and precious that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. Within a year, he was assassinated. We develop that though faith as we stare failure, defeat and death in the eyes and then still choose to trust God. See, I highly recommend this book because it doesn't just talk about Daniel. It talks about every character that you meet in the Bible, from Moses to Ruth to Peter to Paul, all of these great characters. Um, I can definitely, if anybody wants to buy it, I'll put the link in the chat after. But it's saying that in some circumstances, cowardice asks, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity says, is it popular? Conscience asks, is it right? It gets to a point where it's neither safe, political, or popular, but he must do what he feels is right. The mark of a man isn't where he stands in convenience, but in the moments of great challenge, crisis, and controversy. That's literally what Daniel showed here. Daniel and his friends stayed in the face of death. They still trusted God. They still know that God, even if he didn't deliver him, they still would choose to believe in him. They held that faith so high that they were willing to die for it. Babylon tried to change Daniel, but he turned the tables on them and he changed Babylon. And 550 years later, Jesus was born. And we see that he's still seduced and intimidated by Satan when he goes out into the wilderness. God didn't snatch him from the point of death like he did with them, though. Three days after he entered his blazing furnace, he was raised. The impossible happened. The impossible became possible. That's what happens with God. It was the ending that God had written ultimately. And it was the only one to be written. It's where he wins. We win. We see that so many times, as I said, ranging from the first page in Genesis all the way to the last page in Revelation. Prioritize God. Believe that he writes your story. He writes your journey and he writes your ending. And then just see what happens. Because you'll see fruitfulness become miles up there.
See, that's what we see in this first passage. We see that God asks just for us to prioritize him. He's trying to fill up his house up in heaven. And if we give our lives over to him, then we're going to see that happen. See, in this second passage, it's the cost of being a Christian. I'm going to quote Governor B. As Christians, most of us probably have heard of him at this point. Certainly having had a bit of a rave in the basement at Soul Survivor in the evening after a main service. You never promised me an easy life. You just promised to never leave my side. I'm going to link in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is probably my favourite psalm. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise and simple. And he speaks about how perfect God's word is. He shows how perfect it is. And at this point, when David's writing it, he only had the laws. He only had this very slim first section of the book with Exodus, Deuteronomy. He showed that God's word is perfect. I'd say this is the hardest bit of the Bible to read on its own. But it's it's as it says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. It says about how the word of God is perfect and it's perfect for training, teaching and training in righteousness. And this bit of the Bible at the start was the hardest to read, but he still saw it as perfect. He still saw God's amazing grace in it. See, nothing about our faith and nothing about our lives is ever going to be simple. It would be a lot more simple to evangelize if if everything was easy. Because everybody would want to be a Christian because it just promises an easy life. It promises that you can coast through and that you can enjoy yourself. But sometimes because it's difficult makes it all the more worth it at the end. As we said, with the humility of the narrow door, of taking the narrow door, sometimes the hard road is going to have the more fruitful ending. It's going to have the ending that we want to draw ourselves to. See, like it says, if you don't have enough to buy something, are you going to buy it? But with Jesus' blood, it pays our gift receipt for life. So why can't we give it to him? He's paid for it in his blood. Like, if you go into a store and you're like, can I get that? And then you have enough to pay for it. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He went in and he picked up every single item off the shelf. He picked up every, everything off there. He even brought the shop. He brought everything that was going to come into stock. And he brought that all with his blood. Why can't we give him our life? He's paid for it. He paid for it in full on the cross. That's what it's talking about in verses 28 onwards. It's saying, suppose if you want to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If Jesus couldn't have paid for all of our sins, everybody's sins on the cross, it wouldn't have been worth it. But bringing back that bad bit of maths, 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time, being 100% God, he could pay for it because he lived that perfect life to die the perfect death. So the bit I really struggled with in this passage is... Talking about hating our own lives, it's a bit odd to find in the Bible. See, I've really struggled to get my head around it because the literal dictionary definition of hate is an intense dislike. But I think instead what it's here it's saying is that we should not always be comfortable with where we're at. We should constantly be striving for more, not wanting a mediocre life, but stripping ourselves of like a seething that we put on ourselves and saying, you know what, I want to live for the outstanding. It's done through the presence of God because the presence lives in us. There's another great book that speaks all about it, Naturally Supernatural, which is another one by, say, their names again, Andy Croft and Mike Pellavacci. It's a brilliant book. but It's all about living in a life and not wanting to just be mediocre, wanting to be special. And that's what we want at the end of the day. We don't look and we don't think, you know what, 
I want to have a job where I work as a cashier in a shop for my whole life because that's really mediocre. When we're young, we look and we think we want to be an astronaut. We want to be a football player. We want to be a space ninja cowboy. Those type of things, things that sound exciting to us, things that we want to think, you know what, I'm really going to enjoy that when I'm older. That's going to be amazing. Why can't we continue to live with that childhood mindset where we continue want to reach the top and break through that barrier and just keep going? Space Ninja Cowboys might not exist, but I mean, it would still be a pretty cool job. Live for that big life. Don't hold back. Easy to say, difficult to do. A lot of the Bible is. It's easy enough to say that we're going to live a great life. It's difficult to put into action. I'm going to go back to a sport reference here. Living for the 110%. If you know me, Derek Rose is probably the most inspirational sportsman I've seen in a very long time. See, Alex is nodding his head. He is an absolute icon. He's a basketballer. He was in the 2008 draft class, won the 2011 MVP. But he was the youngest ever MVP. Everybody was looking at him and saying he's going to be the next Michael Jordan. See, you'd be mentioning him in the same breath as Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. People that, even if you don't know basketball, you will have heard those names. But in 2012, he had an almost career-ending injury. And he's never been at the same level again. But every time he steps out on the court, he still continues to give 110%. And you see that. And in 2018, it was actually almost this week, two years ago, he had his first 50-point game, which is massive for any basketballer. To score 50 points in a game, not many people do that. But you see in the interview after, he breaks down because he's just put everything into that. Everything he went through over the last 10 years, seven years after his MVP, five years after his almost career-ending injury, to come back and still do it shows that he was never going to give up. He was always going to continue to give it all. That's what we should do. Every time we step out into life, every time we go to do what we enjoy, give it everything. Don't hold back. Another sports reference, Jimmy Butler, also a basketballer. He played 47 minutes and 12 seconds at the finals game five. It was the chance for them to lose the championship. They ultimately did in the end. He only didn't play in 48 seconds of the 48 minute game, which is like the best players only play 36 minutes a game. He hobbled off the court. He took all of the pressure on himself and he gave it everything. He was barely even walking at the end of the 48 minutes. And it's crazy because he these are two people who have given everything to the sport they loved. So if we can love our lives as much as they love basketball, we can continue to give 110% in our lives. Awful maths, I know. But our faith is almost like a team sport. So as I mentioned, I play cricket. If I walk out and bat and I score zero and then I come off, I've not really done my job, have I? I've done an awful job. None of you probably know what, what I'm talking about because... I mean, cricket is a game for 50-year-olds, and realistically, I, I'm just a 50-year-old in a 17-year-old body. We're Team Jesus, but it's all about our personal performance in our lives. It's not as if we can have a lukewarm day and then hope that somebody else is going to do the work for us. We can't be a, a lukewarm Christian and then expect for God's full work to be done here on earth. We can't do that and still have God as our priority. Going back to that last passage, what is our priority? Is it going out and trying out our new, uh, our new oxen or is it going to God's banquet, spending time in his presence? Because what is above God? 
there's nothing here. There's literally nothing. Nothing is going to be able to surpass what God has. Nothing's going to be able to clear God in any way, shape or form. Now we're coming to my favourite bit, but I'm speaking about the salt of the earth part. Salt is great in this analogy, but I'm going to flip it up. Because if you put a grain of salt on your tongue, you see what happens. Eventually, the salt goes unsalty. You probably haven't done that because that's a really weird thing to do. But I think something that we've definitely all done is put a quaver on our tongue and see how long it takes to disintegrate. Quavers are brilliant. I love quavers. The taste is finite. But just imagine a God quaver, right? This is the analogy, a God quaver. It would be like a grain of salt that never loses its saltiness. That would be very useful to Gordon Ramsay or any other chef. Infinite seasoning, but with a God quaver, a God quaver, we'd put it on our tongue and it just doesn't go away. It just doesn't lose that flavor. It doesn't lose that. We have the Holy Spirit. So we can fish for men. We can fish for men without losing our saltiness, without tiring, giving all of us without any excuses with the Holy Spirit within us. We, we live with a burning passion for not quavers, for the Holy Spirit, continuing to try to live for God in every situation. See, as I said at the start, it all comes down to a bit of bad maths. We're going to be that 100% human. That's not the messy part, because, I mean, we all know we're all human. But Jesus, who was 100% man, 100% God, 100% time, when he went to heaven, he left the Holy Spirit on earth. He said that he dwells within us. He goes beside us. He goes across the waters. He's everywhere in, in this earth. And all we have to do is pray for a bit more of him each day. That's the Holy Spirit. It's a story of time. That 100% of the time, that's the bit that it is that we're focusing on. Like it is for anything and for anyone, that time is going to be finite. Giving God 100% our time is what this is all about. That's the link I couldn't find. Giving God everything is giving him that 100% is everything. We're going to be 100% human. We're giving up the extra 100%. We're making ourselves 100% rather than 200%. We're giving God that 100% of time. The Holy Spirit, we're giving God us. We're giving God all of us to get back all of us and a bit of the Holy Spirit. We're just giving up that bit of control. That's ultimately what separates us from the realm of flesh and the spirit, like it says in Romans 8. Ultimately, God writes our ending, like with Daniel, like with Jesus. With all those who came before us, it's where we win. It's where he writes the ending. Back with Daniel, back with looking at the, fa the fact that if we prioritise God, if we give him his time, it's not going to be easy because 100% of your time is a lot of time. Prioritise God and believe that he writes that journey. He writes that story. See what happens. If there's one thing I want you to take away from tonight, it's the fact that every time you put a quaver on your tongue, you pray that you be a bit more like an infinite quaver. You pray that you be a bit more like somebody who continues to want to give God your time, to give God your journey, to give God your story, to give God that ending. Our time's always going to be difficult. And even when it's difficult, making that stand. So yeah, I'm going to hand back to Ben. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. It's been great. Thank you, Josh. That was awesome. Yeah, and I'm just going to really pull up on a couple of things you were talking about. And what I want to focus on is that found people find people. You know, we're told at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 19, to go and make disciples of all nations. Are we finding people? Are we seeking out the lost? You know, if we look at the start of the Gospel of John, 
John the Baptist sees Jesus walking past and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says this to his disciples, to those around him. And then a couple of verses later, when Jesus is calling his disciples, the disciples that he calls, they go and call their friends. They go and call their brothers. Andrew goes and calls his brother Peter and many others. They, there's this network that spreads out. And it's essential that we do this as well, that we are challenged to do this, to talk to other people about Jesus. And the important thing to remember is that we must ask the Holy Spirit to change our view of people. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about how the gospel is divisive, how it's black and white, how there's you can't be half saved. You can't be in the cell and outside the cell. And we've got to remember that we must view people as either saved or not. They're either lost or they're found. And we're called to seek the lost. And, you know, how do we tangibly do that? We spend time with those who are lost. We have those conversations. We wear our faith on our sleeves and have Jesus in every part of our lives. We have those conversations. We take those steps. And I would urge you to talk to others about Jesus, to make it your daily mission to have that conversation with someone. And, you know, it's essential that we pray for the people that we talk to. Absolutely. But also to pray for opportunities for ourselves to speak to people and that we'll have the right things to say. Just two Bible verses to wrap this up. Colossians 4, 5 to 6. It reads, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. There's this idea, this 100% of the time. And at the end there, it says, so that you may know how to answer each person. And how are we going to know how to answer each person? You know, that can seem quite daunting. But we're told by Jesus in Luke 12, 11 to 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God's got you. Trust him. Pray. Take those steps. What do we have to be afraid of? Like Josh said, God wins. God has won. You know, we're told not to be anxious, but through prayer and petition, present our requests to God in Philippians. Take those steps. Have those conversations. Spend time with those who are lost. Be in the world, but not of the world. Go and make disciples of all nations.